Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. Anyone who wants to be president has to come through New Hampshire first, and no one covers New Hampshire politics like WMUR. I'm WMUR political director Adam Sexton, and we hope you can join us every week for this podcast. And our guest this evening is the mayor of Miramar, Florida, Wayne Messam. Tonight we'll be getting to know Mayor Messam and where he stands on key issues. At the start of our show, I'll be asking the candidates some questions, and then after a break, we'll have our studio audience ask their questions in a town hall format. But before we begin with that, let's take a quick look at the candidate's biography. Wayne Messam was born in rural Pahokee, Florida in 1974. He grew up in South Bay, a first-generation American. His parents emigrated from Jamaica. After graduating from Glades Central High School, he went to Florida State University on a full football scholarship and was a starting wide receiver playing for Coach Bobby Bowden on the 1993 National Championship team. The FSU Black Alumni Association named him Student of the Year in 1996 and Messam graduated with a bachelor's in management information systems in 1997. He owns Messam Construction, which builds and manages green construction projects and provides construction management services. In 2011, Messam was elected to the City of Miramar Commission and is mayor of Miramar, Florida in 2015. It's a city of about 150,000, 20 miles north of Miami, and Miramar is home to more Fortune 500 companies than any city in South Florida. Messam is a deacon at the Fountain Church in Miami Gardens. He's married and has three children in college. Mayor Messam, thanks for joining us on Conversation with the Candidate. We appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. So close to two dozen Democratic candidates in this race right now. When someone comes to you and says, hey, who are you first, and why do you think you can win in this field, what do you point to in your experience and your background to try and convince them? Well, you know, um, as a mayor of a very progressive city with one of the fastest growing economies in the country, I'm dealing with a lot of progressive issues in the city of Miramar, Florida, which is the 13th largest city in our state. Um, I get an opportunity to talk to them about um, the leadership of mayors and how close we are to the people, um, our ability to um, touch and reach as well as solve problems um, for our constituents. And as mayor of the city of Miramar, we've done some great things like uh, we passed a living wage, we banned the box, you know, we're competing uh, with China where companies are deciding to stay and grow in our city. Um, these are real issues. I mean, we've brought over uh, 5,000 jobs um, to high paying jobs to the city of Miramar since being mayor. And these are issues that are transferable um, to the national landscape. So obviously with a crowded field, uh, voters are looking for individuals that one, that they can relate to, um, uh, those who have a track record of service, um, those who they see can, um, who can beat Donald Trump, or perhaps even those who can have the ideas um, that serve or that can solve the challenges that they're facing in their everyday lives. So as a mayor, I'm looking forward to continuing to get my message out. And um, the more people that we meet, the more people that we see, the more people that are seeing the Wayne Messam um, for president campaign are more intrigued and want to learn more and I'm excited about that. So obviously there seems to be a demand for outsider candidates and mayors are well positioned there because they have a foot in politics but they're not entirely political. But when you get to the White House you have to deal with foreign policy and obviously the military. So what's prepared you to be commander-in-chief? Well, well, obviously, you know, being a mayor, uh, we work in a nonpartisan environment, and Washington, as we know, is very partisan. And in fact, um, that's where the gridlock is. Everyone is in their corners. You know, as a mayor, um, we get a chance to um, see a varying of um, ideas 
ideas, uh, challenges, um, competing interests. And our job is to meet those needs in a way where we can bring people together. And that's what is needed in Washington. Someone who has the, um, the, the breadth of experience in terms of dealing with um, competing interests, competing views, um, to be able to focus on what matters um, the most. Um, in terms of um, being the commander in chief, obviously that's the number one um, job um, for the presidency. Um, even when I announced my um, exploratory committee, the first action I took was to take a trip abroad and I went to um, the Middle East. I went to Jerusalem as well as Ramallah. I went on my own. I did not um, go by any groups. I, I wanted to get a, a first-hand experience of, of that um, specific conflict and um, it was a great experience and meeting with the, uh, with the Israeli um, Ministry of Foreign Affairs as well as with the Palestinian uh, um, leaders. Um, it gave me a, a perspective to be able to see these are the challenges that we have to face and my goal would be to restore America as an honest broker abroad. What impacts of climate change have you seen in Miramar and what have you done about it? Well, you know, in the city of Miramar, uh, we're investing over $100 million in our infrastructure. You know, obviously Florida, the state of Florida is ground zero for um, sea level rise, um, but climate change means more than just sea level rise. It means that uh, you see the record-breaking um, fires um, in the west in California, as well as in the heartland uh, where our farmers are having um, impacts to their crop production. So climate change is real. Um, so um, investing in our infrastructure is the number one solution regardless um, in dealing with climate change. So whether it's us raising our streets so that we can deal with um, uh, rising sea levels, um, or could it be a situation in, in, in fortifying our infrastructure so um, neighborhoods aren't flooding as much? Um, those are the specific um, uh, um, solutions that we're bringing to the table, but it also has had some economic benefit as well, because when you put local people to work, working on infrastructure projects that is uh, making us more resilient um, is a win-win. One of your big ideas has been canceling student loan debt. I think that's about over a trillion dollars. So yes. how do you pay for that? Well, um, in my proposal, it states that we will pay for this uh, by um, repealing or adjusting the um, tax cuts that um, President Trump gave to the large corporations and the richest um, of Americans that didn't necessarily um, find its way into um, to the pocketbooks of the American people. Um, so in a combination of that, it will be used to um, eradicate or forgive um, the $1.5 trillion. But it's not just forgiving um, the student loans. It's actually an economic stimulus um, because we see our analysis states that it will add 80 to $100 billion to the GDP. It will create um, up to upwards of $1.5 million a million um, jobs um, to the economy, as well as free up about on average $400 per month um, for uh, average everyday um, debt holders to be able to invest in their retirement, qualify for a mortgage to perhaps um, buy their first um, home, but it'll put it back into the economy. All right, Mayor Messam, those were the easy questions out here. The town hall audience awaits. Yes. Coming after, up after the break, we'll bring our studio audience into this conversation. Stay with us. Life's beautiful moments, sunsets, landscapes, wildlife. That's WMUR's U Local Facebook group. Join this growing community and browse the stunning images captured by viewers like you. Or share your own. Get started at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash WMUR9. Go to groups and join U Local. See you there. Welcome back to Conversation with the Candidate and our candidate today, Mayor Wayne Messam of Miramar, Florida. We're going to bring in our New Hampshire voters here with their town hall questions, and we're going to start with Laura Landerman-Garber. Thanks for joining us, Laura. Thank you. Welcome to New Hampshire, to sunny New Hampshire. <laughs> Thanks, Laura. 
I, I have a, a little bit of a long question, but it, it does come together, I promise. Okay. I'm a clinical psychologist. I work a lot with children and teens, often from military families. And these uh, youth are coming in with stunning numbers and intensity of anxiety. I'm very concerned about them. They're worried about their safety. They're worried about their family member who might be deployed safety. They're guilty about who to be more worried about. Um, it's, it's, it's very stunning. Uh, I grew up in Pittsburgh, literally in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, and he used to say to us when I was younger, as he said to the nation, in scary times, look for the helpers. As president, you would be the chief helper. What message would you give our youth? What message would you give our parents? What, what is your plan to help our country feeling, to feel more safe, especially our children? Yeah, so thanks, Laura, for your question. Obviously, as the commander-in-chief and as the president of the United States, it's our job is to keep, is to keep this nation safe. And the nation is looking for a leader who is steady, a leader who can deal with crises. But specifically, um, to your question, it's very important um, for the presidents to give that reassurance, to make sure that there are resources available. It's more than just saying you know you're safe. It's about providing the resources and to let them know that, you know, in life, you know, there will be challenges, you know, like we're facing today. But I think it's important for the president not to cause many of these challenges, especially children who, whose parents are in our military, not to make unnecessary provocations, to make instability um, the norm in which we're seeing right now coming out um, of this administration. So a MESM administration will ensure um, that we will do everything not only to keep this country safe, but to ensure that the supporters of our people who are on the first line of defense in terms of our military, um, know that they have the resources, but to assure them that they will have the resources right here at home um, to ensure that they have the resources to, to deal with any challenges as they're concerned about their loved ones who are keeping us safe. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you Laura. Very much. Thank you, Laura. The next question comes from Nancy Keene. Hi, welcome to New Hampshire, and thank you for bringing warm weather with you. Uh, <laughs> yes. One thing I'm really concerned about is the conversation in the country. There's a lot of division among people, and it's like people cannot talk to someone else without you know, giving a, some kind of a rotten answer to people. And I'm just wondering what you can do to bring our country back together so we can have some kind of civility. Well, you know, um, that's one of the benefits I have of being the mayor of perhaps one of the country's most diverse community in Miramar, Florida, and being in South Florida. Um, I was my first, our city's first um, African-American mayor that was elected back in 2015. And when you have a very culturally diverse community, um, it's very important to know that you are the leader of all of the community. Um, you have to make sure that people in um, your community understand that there's nothing wrong with us being different. We can embrace our differences because there's strength and diversity. And as the commander in chief, unlike what is coming out of Washington right now, where this current uh, president is dividing us, uh, putting American averse Ameri versus Americans, um, a MESM administration will not only unite this country, but celebrate our differences and let everyone know that in America, we are a nation made up of immigrants, made up of naturally born um, individuals here that help build this country. Um, and it's okay for us to be different because we're stronger for it. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Nancy. Next question comes from Judith Gessner. Hi, I'm Judy Gessner, and I um, am interested in how you would make 
prescriptions more affordable for everyone. Yes. You know, uh, one of my first jobs after uh, my NFL career was cut short um, was working in an industry that helped educate physicians um, in how to treat morbid conditions, which um, most of the time it was um, the, um, the advocacy for prescription medication. And, um, and I slowly saw that that industry was not the industry for me uh, because when you saw so many seniors and indigent individuals could not access medicines that could improve their morbid condition or perhaps even save their lives, um, I decided to start my own um, business and where I own a, a construction management company now. But I think we have to allow um, um, the government to be able to negotiate uh, prescription medicines, especially through our uh, Medicare program, um, so that um, prescription medicines can be more accessible um, to individuals that need it so much. You know, uh, my parents who have um, passed on have had, the, had their own bouts with morbid um, conditions um, and to see them um, have to make those you know those hard uh, decisions those financial decisions do I uh, pay for my ob financial obligations or do I pay for my prescription medication and I think that the access not only to health care but the ability to access prescription medication I think is a civil right and we as the most powerful country in this nation I think everyone should have access to health care everyone should have access to the medications that can improve their health conditions thank you very much thank you thank you Judith next question comes from social media Mr. Yes. Mayor Adrian Perry asks what are your thoughts on veterans health care and homeless veterans Yes, you know, um, this group, I have members of my family that are veterans. And, you know, uh, most candidates may say, I'm going to come in here and I'm going to fix um, the VA. That's what's expected um, from most candidates. Uh, but my commitment is to come in to see what is wrong. Because those who, who lose their lives, who lose limbs, who go to fight to keep us safe, um, from harms, keep us safe from harm's way, to come back home and not have access to the health care, the, the support that they need to deal with the trauma of being um, in an active um, war zone, and to keeping us safe is a travesty. So my commitment as president is to make sure that we first identify where the bottlenecks are, that we identify um, the issues. There's so many veterans that come back home and they're committing suicide um, and they're homeless. And for whatever reason, this society has not embraced and welcomed them back. Um, a MESM administration would not only make sure that their health care is taken care of, but they have an opportunity to integrate back into society and also to make sure that their families have the resources to be able to identify if there is a problem so that we can get our veterans the help and the support um, that they need. Because the least we can do is to ensure that our veterans are taken care of when they come back home. Because they are the ones that are providing us uh, the liberty so that we can be here um, to live the lives that we live here in America. So quick follow up on that. You're the owner of a successful business. What needs to change, do you think, from a management perspective at the VA? Uh, we've identified these problems. We've known about them. There was a huge crisis in 2014 uh, out in Arizona with veterans dying. So mm -hmm. what needs to change, do you think, at the VA specifically? Well, I think perhaps um, there's, um, you know, whenever you have a large entity, there's a lot of box checking protocol, bureaucracy. Um, if this scenario is not met, then this benefit or this process cannot take place. So when I said that my priority is to go in to understand where the bottlenecks are, that we eliminate all of these challenges. You know, as a mayor, as a business owner, my focus is solving the problem. 
And my administration would be focused on solving the problem, opposed to solving the issue or the process of checking a box to clear a particular benefit or to clear the access to a process. So that's the benefit of being close to the people as a mayor, but that's also the benefit of owning my own business. Who have to, I have to make a payroll. I have to make tough decisions. And that's what a president has to do. So I think when it starts from the top and when your cabinet understands that we are here to solve the problems of the American people when it comes to the VA, um, we will do that because our veterans must be taken care of. And not only in just this administration, but previous administrations, um, we could have served and done better and done right um, for our veterans. Next question comes from Gay Jacques of Laconia. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Um, service members are more prone to arthritis uh, from basic training to combat activities that uh, weaken and uh, weaken and uh, destroy uh, joints. Mm -hmm. um, uh, at an early age, one in three veterans has arthritis. Would you support a um, dedicated arthritis research at the DOD, um, that, which would benefit uh, 54 million Americans with arthritis? Well, I think we should evaluate all types of morbid conditions that cause chronic issues um, for our men and women that's serving um, in the military. And um, I would rely on our, um, our, our, our specialists in the Department of Defense um, to see not only for arthritis, but what other uh, morbid conditions um, that we need to provide the resources for. You know, um, being a former athlete, and in no way am I comparing being a football player to serving in our military, but because of the strenuous activities of practicing every day, um, the, the degradation of your joints, and uh, I can definitely um, appreciate some of these challenges and and those individuals who may work in a factory or who may um, do very um, intense labor that's um, repetitive that um, causes these um, these problems so I can understand those individuals who are currently performing their work um, in our military um, that have to endure this pain as well as after they've served our country and have retired and have these lingering issues um, because of their service and their work so we owe it to our military personnel and our veterans um, to ensure that not only that we don't forget them you know it's more than just being an active duty but their lives continue so we have to look at ways to see not only can how we prevent um, these issues but once they've stopped serving our military that we ensure that they have the benefits and the treatment to help them continue to have a great quality of life thank you thank you gay next up is Clara Monier hi Claire hello good morning mr. mayor I'm concerned about Social Security it has been predicted to run into problems by 2035. Do you have any proposals to solve that crisis before it happens? Well, obviously, um, the social net of Social Security is this should be there for those who've paid into this system. And I think there's just another reason why we say that Washington is broken. We don't have the political will um, to solve uh, this issue. Everyone backs in their corner in Washington. Um, some say we should privatize um, the investments for social, uh, so, uh, social Security. Um, others say that we should keep it as it is. But what we do know is that the course that we're on right 
now is unsustainable. Uh, we have to have the political will to solve this issue because the last thing that we want is for my three children who are in college right now, when they graduate, thank God when they graduate, uh, <laughs> that they go on to um, live their lives, pay into this system, and when they become seniors that they can benefit from it. Um, so obviously um, I'm looking forward um, to um, releasing our proposal um, that will look at how we will not only protect and prop up this very fragile system, but to ensure that we make the proper investments and have the proper policies in place to ensure its sustainability for when your grandchildren and your um, descendants yet to be born to ensure that they have the social net once they've retired. And thank you for recognizing that we pay into the system. It mm. is not an entitlement. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you. All right, thank you, Clara. Another social media question coming in here. This is from Eliza Lane. Uh, is he going to be yet another Democrat who votes to take vaccine exemptions away from the American people? Well, if I understand the question uh, properly in terms of um, should we or should we not have our, uh, our kids um, vaccinated. And I think um, the latest reports in terms of the resurgence of measles um, shows the importance of vaccinations. Um, you know, um, I've always been a straight shooter. And I think um, when, when a country says that we've eradicated a particular disease because of the success of vaccinations, and then we, there's a push to not vaccinate um, our population in our society and we see the resurgence of a disease which was thought to be eradicated just shows I mean, of a sense the, the threat and the dangers um, of this. And I think that from a public safety um, standpoint, uh, we have to rely on the science, we have to rely on the data that it's in our nation's best interest um, to ensure that every individual is vaccinated Otherwise, we threaten our society. Um, so um, I would be in a position to, um, obviously, um, I, I, I support individuals taking those intimate medical decisions between themselves and their healthcare professional. But as commander in chief and the president of the United States, um, we have to rely on the, our CDC and the recommendations in terms of how do we, um, how do we prevent this massive spread of, of diseases that are debilitating and have the, um, the, the possibility to become a, another epidemic. That's why we have these vaccinations to protect all of society. And we cannot put all of society at risk for single individuals who may, for whatever reason, make that personal decision not to vaccinate their child. Next question comes from Leonard Morrill. Well, first of all, thank you for being here. You. And you can keep the hot weather in Florida. That's <laughs> fine with me. My question's on foreign policy. What area of foreign policy do you feel will be the number one item that needs to be focused on when you take office and why? I think it's just the philosophical position of restoring America's reputation of being an honest broker abroad. That I think is the single most important issue right now. The current president has taken an isolationist position. He's made provocations and have created instability. Right now we have um, escalation with conflicts with Iran, a mis uh, an issue of this president's own making. One of the first things I did when I um, announced my exploratory committee is I took a trip to the Middle East. I went to Israel, visited Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, as well as Ramallah. It was an independent trip. It was not supported by any interest group. I met with the uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, met with the Deputy Minister there, also met with the Deputy Speaker of the Knesset, 
So I met with the, the far right of the Israeli government and the far left of the Israeli government. The next day I went to Ramallah, met with Dr. Saeed Arafat, who negotiated the Oswald Accord, as well as meeting with everyday Israeli and Palestinian people. And one thing they say is that they want a two-state solution. And they also say that this administration has not taken the proper steps to bring the two parties together. In fact, what we're seeing is a choosing of sides, a putting a thumb on the scale. Because what we do know is that whether you agree with the um, U.S. Embassy being moved to Jerusalem or not, all we know is that these decisions are making it more difficult for the two sides to have a two-state solution which they both agree to. Israel is a very important and strategic ally for us in the region. However, what we have to do is, as an honest broker, be able to hold both sides accountable, bring them together so that they can negotiate their two-state solution. Because what we do know is that a stable Israel and a solution for the Palestinian people makes the region safer. And as well as us not picking and, and, and choosing our battles and being consistent so that this world will see um, America as the honest broker. And as President of the United States, that will be my guiding compass that we are making decisions as an honest broker. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you, Leonard. We've got about 30 seconds here. First phone call if you're in the Oval Office to an international leader, who are you going to call? Well, first call international leader, well, I guess it won't not, it will not be Mr. Putin. I can say that much. <laughs> But, uh, but, but, but in all, 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 all seriousness, uh, the, the first call I would make is I would get my cabinet together. I would get my uh, secretary of state together so that we can um, identify the most pressing issues internationally and prioritize them because there are many. We have many fronts and we will assess that. And then from there, we will decide on our next steps and who that initial call will go to. All right. Hey, Facebook recently made some changes. Now you're missing out on lots of content from WMUR, but it's easy to stay connected. Go to WMUR's Facebook page, tap follow, then see first. That's it, just two taps brings you back in the know. We're gonna continue with the questions from New Hampshire voters and we're gonna start off with Benjamin Pelletier. Hello, Mayor, and welcome to New Hampshire. Do you believe in universal background checks for people purchasing guns? If so, how will you get your plan past the NRA supporters in Congress? Well, uh, I think uh, it's a great question, Benjamin. And what we do know is that the climate we're seeing in this country right now in terms of gun violence, mass shootings, and just the access to guns and the travesty it's causing across this country that we sh cannot as a nation accept this as the new norm. Um, I think there are some low-hanging fruit that we can do and one that you mentioned in terms of um, universal background checks. I do support that. I do agree with that because I believe that those individuals who should not have a gun shouldn't have them. If you're on a terror watch list, if you have certain um, health, uh, mental health care conditions um, that would disqualify you and being a competent gun um, owner, I think you should not um, have them. And there are signs um, that can help us to um, detect these individuals. But by um, implementing that, um, you know, we, you know we, we, we should, that should be the direction we should go. And I think in terms of how do we get this past a Congress that is influenced by, by the NRA, I can tell you what I'm doing right now in the city of Miramar, Florida. In the, city, in the state of Florida, there are preemption laws where local mayors cannot uh, pass any ordinances dealing with the 
regulation of firearms or ammunition. Um, in fact, the NRA-backed legislat uh, legislature actually put a chilling provision, penalty provision, in our state statute that even if we pass these laws at a local level, for example, if we don't want to have assault-style weapons in our parks where our kids are playing, the governor can remove me from office, personally fine me $5,000. I can't use the city attorney to defend me. It's that type of chilling effect. So I'm suing the state of Florida right now and other um, cities have joined in on that lawsuit so that we can remove that punitive damage because of the ambiguity of that state statute. We don't even talk about it at the local level in fear that we could be removed from office. And that's the shame. So I refuse to accept that. As president, I will refuse to have an administration that will bow down to the NRA and those Congress women and men who will not stand up to the NRA and go to the American people because it's the American people who must hold Congress accountable along with the support of presidency that will sign a bill that will eradicate this danger. I'm a supporter of the Second Amendment. I believe that we all should have the right to bear arms, but I think we should bear them responsibly. And if we keep the guns out of the hands of those individuals who should not have them, perhaps we will not see an incident like Parkland that took place just 15 minutes from the city of Myanmar where I'm the mayor and we actually sent police officers to respond to that incident. So I'm not speaking rhetoric, I'm speaking what I'm living and I have the um, experience in actually going through litigation right now and that will be the same tenacity that I would bring to the Oval Office. Thank you, Thank Thank you, you. Benjamin. Quick follow-up on this topic Mr. Yes. Mayor. Uh, we know that there will probably be at some point Democrats are able to pass something whether it squares with the Second Amendment or not unclear. But there could be civil disobedience around this issue from people who support the Second Amendment. Uh, and clearly that would also involve guns. So what would be your approach as president if you're able to pass certain gun control measures but certain people don't want to abide by them, what would be the response perhaps from the U.S. Attorney General? Well the thing is is that let's look at what, will be, what would be passed. You know the uh, bringing back uh, the provisions of the Brady Bill that, you know, stop certain types of guns from being um, imported and manufactured, like uh, assault-style weapons. You know, that's just a matter of what's being produced and what's being sold. So there shouldn't be an outcry for that. Um, we talk about having universal background checks for individuals who would seek to purchase a firearm who either don't have the mental capacity or have committed certain crimes or on a terror watch list, these individuals to prevent them. Um, so I think we have to be very clear in terms of what is the legislation that is being passed. I think the American people are smart enough to realize um, the efforts to stop those who shouldn't have guns to have guns versus coming to Mary and Joe's residence to take their handgun away from them. And that will not be the case. And that's not what I would ever um, advocate. So I think we have to be clear in terms of what anti-gun legislation that would be passed so that the American people can be very clear that it's not taking their guns but it's preventing those who shouldn't have guns from getting guns and stopping the access to guns that have been designed and manufactured just to annihilate life and not to hunt or perhaps even protect. 
Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Next question comes from Marie Mulroy. Yes, hi, how are you? Welcome hi, to New Hampshire. Um, this question you've talked about a little bit before, um, so I'm gonna ask it again in case you have anything else to add. And, and that has to do with the fact that there's nearly two dozen candidates right now running for office and how, you're, how you position yourself such that you're gonna stand out in this crowded field. Well, you know, I present myself obviously as a unique candidate. You know, I'm one of only a few mayors that are running outside of Washington. You know, first, you know, you talk about a crowded field. I think voters are looking for someone who they feel is authentic and someone who has the experience of who they see who can be um, the president of the United States. Um, one thing I will say is that, you know, I've always been an underdog. Being the son of immigrants, my parents came from Jamaica. My father was a contract sugarcane cutter. My mother was a cook that used to go out in the fields to feed them. You know, I was never expected to go to Florida State University to um, play football for legendary coach Bobby Bowden, much less win a national championship, to wear an NFL uniform, um, to be the first black mayor of a very diverse city, one of the largest cities in the state of Florida, and to even be contemplated as president. So I've been an underdog all my life. I've been the dark horse all my life. Um, so standing out is something um, that um, I've always been successful at. And then what I would ask um, New Hampshire voters to do um, is just to visit my website at wayne4usa.com and to um, help me get to the debate stage um, because I believe I can bring, as you can see, um, very different responses to the questions that you're asking asking and I can relate them to the experiences that I've done um, in the city of Miramar. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you. And a quick follow on this one too, Mr. Mayor. We see Mayor Pete Buttigieg has had this meteoric rise. Some people have questioned, you know, with you getting less attention, if, they, if that is an issue of race. Do you see a, any racial bias or perhaps white privilege on the other side of that in the Buttigieg versus Messam discussion? You know, I'll let the pundits answer that question. But what I will say um, is that as mayors, you can see we bring a unique candidacy. All I'm saying is give me my fair share of exposure. You know, if I have the ability to have a CNN town hall or whatever network town hall where millions of Americans can understand and have a glimpse of the life of Wayne Messam and my policy proposals like to forgive the $1.5 trillion in outstanding student loan debt, perhaps there may be a certain percentage of those millions that would support me. And then I would get invited to some of the other places where Mayor Pete has been um, invited. So I think it's more so of a matter of exposure. Um, so all I say is that give me my fair share um, of um, exposure. And I think that enough Americans will support me to get to the point um, to perhaps um, even surpass um, Mayor Pete. Um, and, um, and, and I have nothing against um, my colleague. Um, I think uh, what we all bring to the table is a unique life experience. Definitely not a traditional person who should be considered president for the United States. And I think what Americans will see as they're seeing unique candidates like us, that there are viable options that are from outside of Washington that will work hard to solve the challenges and the needs of the American people. Next question comes from Joan Wentworth. Good evening, Mayor. Affordable housing is becoming a very serious problem in this country, both in places that have experienced rapid economic growth and in rural areas. Nationwide, nearly a quarter of all renters are now classified as severely rent burdened, spending more than half of their incomes on rent, with African Americans and seniors being especially hard hit. 
How will you address this crisis in affordable housing if you are elected president? Um, thank you for your question. In fact, in South Florida and even in my own city, it's a very tough situation, especially not just even affordable housing. There is even a problem just for workforce housing and what we call attainable housing. And we have to be intentional about um, our programs. In the state of Florida, um, we actually, in real estate closings, um, we have a Sadowski trust fund where in real estate closing, a certain percentage of that closing goes to this trust fund to be invested into affordable housing. But guess what the state of Florida does every year. We collect about $300 million per year in this fund and it's swept every year in the legislative uh, session to go to the general fund to fund other priorities in the tune of over I think a couple billion dollars since the inception of the fund that should be dedicated to housing that could help my city. So I think as president, you know, we would make these irrevocable commitments to help fund housing that can't be diverted into other interests or diverted into other causes outside of housing. We have to have the commitment in our communities because we cannot have cities, and we, whether it's rural or urban, where only the rich or only the well-off can afford to live in the places where we work. And we must continue to have the commitment and the funding sources to be able to be committed to ensure that everyone has a decent place to reside. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you, Joan. And a quick follow on this one, Mr. Mayor. How involved should the federal government be in the housing market? Some people uh, contend that involvement sometimes warps things in the wrong way. Well, the thing is, uh, on the federal level, I'm not saying that there should be regulations, you know, to down to the actual um, allocation of the funding. I think making the funding available and rewarding those states, rewarding those municipalities um, that have the best programs to meet the need of housing in those communities should be awarded that funding. And um, I think when you let the creativity of local um, investors, local communities to solve their local challenges, and, and again, that's uh, being a mayor, you know, these are the home rule issues um, that we fight for and strive for because if we provide, when, when, when the federal government works with local government, and give local government the autonomy to solve its issues. The local government knows what works for their respective community. So the federal government shouldn't be telling local cities, you know, what to do um, without the proper resources. Provide the resources and the local community can solve their challenges, and I'm, com I'm convinced of that. Next question comes from Carolyn Morrill. Hi. I'm in the group that you call seniors, meaning I am on Medicare. And there I have to pay my Medicare premium Part D premium, and also a supplement. Unfortunately, a lot of candidates are doing Medicare for All free. And a lot of the young voters, people under 65, feel that 1% is going to pay for the rest of their medical bills. Where do you stand on health care? Thank you um, for your question. As I mentioned earlier, I think that access to health care is a civil right. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about Medicare for all. Um, I think that's a plausible solution um, because it's something that exists and people can touch and feel it and they see that, it's, that it uh, provides health care um, for Americans. Um, I think my position is a little different than what you're hearing um, for everyone. I think in a perfect world, um, a single payer 
process or our universal health care um, uh, would be a, a, a the best solution. But we know in this climate and in this, um, in this uh, Washington environment, um, coming from where we are right now with the Affordable Care Act to universal health care is a large leap. I believe that those individuals who do not have access to health care can be brought into the Medicare system. But I also believe in choice. If you're a young American or maybe a senior American, and if you have an employer provided uh, or a private provided um, insurance plan that you like, you like your doctor, you like your plan, you should be able to keep that. You know, so, but those who may have insurance from an employer or private, um, private insurance that does not like it and want to move over and bring their premiums over to the Medicare plan, I think should be able to do that as well. So I think that approach will not only uh, provide exceptional health care for those who don't want to make a change and they choose to stay where they are because they're happy with what they have, but it also captures the individuals who don't have access to health care or perhaps want to go into the government uh, program. And I think that is a great, it's not, some people may call that gradualism. I just say it's, it's a practical approach to including those who don't have insurance while not disrupting those individuals who are happy um, with their current plan. And I think it's a practical solution as a first step as we work towards getting to a universal health care solution. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Carolyn. Next question comes from Lauren Selig from Durham. Hi, thank you so much for being here. I'm married to a local government official, so I appreciate how difficult your job is. Um, my question has to do with the judiciary. As we've seen over the past several years, the head of the Senate has blocked appointments and blocked the ability for people to even consider nominations, not just at the Supreme Court level, but also at the lower courts. I'd like to know what you would do to protect the judiciary. Well, you know, uh, many folks are asking, you know, are asking candidates, will you stack the course? Will you increase the number of uh, Supreme Court justices? And I think uh, the, storks have, the, the courts have already been stacked. You know, President Obama was denied his appointment. And I think that's a travesty. And it's the politics that, you know, the Senate uh, leader, um, McConnell, has is, is taken. And what I will say is that if the Republicans want to play that game while I'm the President of the United States, that I will defend the rights so that I can make my appointments um, to the Supreme Court um, so that ensure that there's a balance in our um, Supreme Court. Because what has happened right now is there's a stacking that is already has taken place. We don't have to extend or expand the number of justices. Um, the, the Republicans have already done that just from their actions, our lack of in President Obama's case. Um, so I think we speak truth to power as it relates um, to actually what happened. And that is why these questions are, are, are coming forward. Um, but I will not sit back idly and just let, uh, for example, uh, uh, a Republican majority Senate uh, dictate who should be you know, appointed um, to the Supreme Court while I'm President of the United States. Thank you. Thank you, Lauren. And following up on that, Mr. Mayor, uh, some candidates have come out and said they support a litmus test uh, on abortion for Supreme Court justice nominees or even judicial nominees. What do you think about that? Well, I think uh, it's very dangerous. It's very dangerous if a particular Supreme Court justice candidate or potential nominee um, would want to revert what has been precedent or established law. As it specifically relates um, to um, Roe v. Wade and abortion, um, that's settled law. And as president, I will defend the fact that that is 
settled law. So, uh, so I would expect um, any nominee to come from a Mesom administration um, nomination to respect the Constitution um, as well as to, um, to, to keep or to hold true um, to precedent that has been set. Is there anything the president can do, though? I mean, we see uh, in states in the South right now a move toward creating a legal framework that is designed to challenge Roe v. Wade. What can the president do about that issue of abortion? Well, I think what presidents can do is to ensure that you have an attorney general and a justice department that will defend our laws. And currently, right now, that is the law of the land. Um, and um, we, when you have an administration like the current administration um, that is basically providing an environment to challenge what has been set as established law, that is a problem. Uh, but as president, it is important that who you have as an attorney general and to understand that the attorney general is the attorney general for the American people and not for my administration, as we're seeing right now um, in Washington. We have a social media question, this one from Damian McConnell. He says, please, uh, please explain your views on trans equality. Well, you know, in terms of the um, trans equality or LGBTQ um, 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 rights, um, I think that, you know, as a, as a nation, we should be a nation of acceptance. We should be a nation to, um, that welcomes individuals to, um, to live their, their, their truth, their lives. Um, in the way um, that they want to live their lives, you know, um, and you don't hear this a lot um, from from Democrats, uh, but I'm a Christian, you know, and the one thing I know that what my Bible teaches me is that there's one thing that um, that that my God doesn't make me do. He doesn't force me to serve him. So why should I force my say my religious belief on the American people. That's my private decision, it's my private religious position. Um, but whether it's a religious issue, um, or if you see this as an issue as a person identifying with their sexuality, or their sense of being, uh, that has nothing to do with another person. That's that person's choice. Um, they should have free reign and free ability to be able to live their lives without discrimination. Next question comes from Dan Bergeron. Mayor Messam. Yes. I admire your success on and off the field. Thank you. Now, when asked about this new field you're playing in, uh, the Sun Sentinel referenced your statement, I don't, care, I don't compare myself to the other mayor, which you referenced earlier. Um, and when recently asked to clarify his charter schools, uh, he said charter schools have a place statement. He sort of followed that up with his concern about public school divestment. So I guess at this point in time, could you clearly explain your plan for education funding and how that may impact Manchester School District, the largest in the state, as well as other districts? Well, just in general, I think every American child should have the best education possible in the world. No disagreeing here. <laughs> and with that stated, obviously right now the evolution of education has gone from to public school systems, private schools, charter, not-for-profit charters, for-profit charters. My position has always been in terms of public education. I support the full funding of public education. I do not support any policy or any funding recommendations that will take one cent away from the full funding of public education. I have nothing against charter schools, I have nothing against private schools. I'm not even saying that charter schools can't get public funding 
All I'm saying is that public schools should never be at the mercy or be sacrificial lambs in terms of funding as it relates to funding other forms and options of education. Agreed. All right, thank you, Jim. Thank you. Quick follow-up on that topic, Mr. Uh, Mr. Mayor. Uh, in Florida, there, there's this huge debate going on, and some of you might be aware of this, too, of, in post-Parkland, the idea of discipline, yes. and that the shooter in that case, uh, there's a big debate around the school-to-prison pipeline and how that case was handled. So from your perspective in Florida, uh, where do you stand on the issue of school discipline and what to do about students, uh, some of whom are uh, diverted into the prison and they, their lives are changed for the worse, but then obviously you have these other situations where there are people who need the disciplinary action and didn't get it in the case of Parkland. So where do you stand on that? Well, I think what has happened is that, and these are where you see um, disparities um, in terms of discipline in schools. What was happening, um, for example, um, Robert Runsey is the, is the superintendent for Broward Schools. I think they're the, we have the sixth largest school district in the nation. And before he became superintendent, Broward County was not number one, one of the highest school districts from pipeline, from classroom to jail. And he changed that with his, with, his, with his policies and programs, where kids were graduating from school, they were not going to jail, and it was a great program. I think the program that was implemented in Broward County was um, misrepresented in terms of why that shooter did what he did in Parkland. And other school districts that have diversion programs, these are good programs, because what these programs do is that it prevents students specifically students of color, from being unnecessarily incarcerated, scarred for the rest of their lives for either juvenile mistakes that are interpreted as criminal, and you've now impacted impair, and impaired that individual's ability to serve in our military, to get a job, they have to check the box, and oh, by the way, in the city of Miramar, we ban checking the box on applications, which is a question that asks if you've been arrested, which basically disqualifies you. They don't even look at your qualifications. And it's so important that we have that cultural and diversity sensitivity that things are different. A black boy and a black girl sometimes, and a lot of times, are not treated the same as their peers. And it's just a fact. And these diversion programs, allows a step gap to be able to prevent those type of situations. Or perhaps a kid just makes a mistake. God knows I made mistakes growing up. Sometimes if we're all honest, it's just that perhaps you didn't get caught by the teacher in doing something, right? So if we're, if, if we're in a country that believes in a second chance, I think we're better off. And these diversion programs give kids a second chance because that's what they are. They're kids. Now, if there's individuals who have created um, crimes in school, they should be dealt with appropriately. But oftentimes, it's little mistakes that ruins kids' lives. And as president, I would support programs um, that would provide options for kids to be educated well, to challenge them to be uh, problem solvers, to be producers, because quite frankly, our education system is not preparing us for this gig economy. It's not preparing us for us to remain an economic power. When we have to import programmers from other countries, while we have kids who are delinquent, you know, 
Our electoral process was challenged from a cybersecurity standpoint. We're getting cyber threats on our military systems, our financial systems, our medical systems. We need to be training hundreds of thousands of programmers just to defend our data systems. And as president, these will be focuses of mine. In fact, we will be investing in every high school child to be an entrepreneur. Whether they're going to start a business themselves or not, then at least they have the skill sets to know that I'm going to bring an entrepreneurial mindset to my employer. Or if I've worked 10 years, I can take the skill sets that I've developed, or perhaps I was laid off by my employer. Now I can land on my feet, use the skills and resources and certifications I got with that employer to start my own business. Because now automation, virtualization, artificial intelligence is defining the definition of work. And our workforce is not prepared. So we need to ensure that we are investing in your children and your grandchildren to make sure that they can make money for themselves while solving our problems. Not only solving our problems, but solving these world's problems, creating new jobs. Right now, if you're a child or if you're an Uber driver, in a few more years, they're going to be releasing fleets of autonomous Uber and Lyft vehicles. What are going to happen to the millions of drivers? We shouldn't fear that. We should be preparing them to service this new industry. Someone has to program them. Someone has to service them when they're on our streets. Someone even has to clean them after someone gets in there after a party and they relieve themselves in there, right? <laughs> That's a business. So if we're teaching our kids to be entrepreneurial minded, that when, when displacement and disruption of employment takes place, that they're empowered and have the skill sets to be able to make a living for themselves and their families. You speak of entrepreneurship, job creation, that's political territory that Republicans like to own. So as a, a business owner and a Democrat, is there anything you think Democrats get wrong about being a business owner and dealing with business in government? Well, I think there's another thing that speaks to my uniqueness as a candidate. You know, I'm a business owner, you know, and I'm a Democrat and bleed blue. And I love to make money as a business owner because I need to make money to hire the best employees so I can pay them properly so they can take care of their families. I don't concede that creating jobs is a Republican lane because I'm a Democrat who's a mayor, who owns a business, and who loves to make money, but yet I pass the living wage in my city because I believe our employees shouldn't have to work two and three jobs just to make ends meet. I brought over 5,000 jobs to my city on averaging over $70,000 a year. So I know how to create jobs. I know how to start a business. I have a climate conscious business who helped build one of the greenest elementary schools in America. So as a candidate, I will work hard to not only create jobs, but to prepare our American people and our future generation on how to become entrepreneurs so that we can create more doers, more inventors to, ins to inspire this country to do great things. This entire candidacy for the nomination has talked about restoring America to some form of normalcy since Trump has been elected. But the last I checked was that Normalcy before Trump wasn't working for every American. We need to be shooting much higher. And I want our country to dream again, to be inspired, to just be 
not the great that Trump talks about, but to be beyond that word. Because we truly have the assets, we truly have the resources, and we truly have the American people that can make it happen. One quick final question here. We asked this uh, of Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Is there any project going on in your city, if you become president, that you're gonna hate to walk away from that you wanna see it finished? Well, I would say, you know, in our historic side of town, and Miramar relatively is young. We were founded in 1955. But in our historic side of town, um, the side of the town that basically kept the city propped it up as we grew. We were one of the fastest growing cities at one point in the country. We're putting in a new water treatment plant. We're putting in new storm sewers in our city, new water distribution, and we're revitalizing historic downtown Miramar. And that's been an area that has been neglected, you know, over the years. I ran for office, you know, talking about let's bring up historic Miramar. It's very, it's, it's, it's we've made so much progress in the area, and um, and and that would be something that even from the oral from from the Oval Office, I'll be keeping my eye of and making sure that it's done right. All right, Mayor Wayne Messam, <laughs> thank, thank you so much for joining us for conversation with the candidate. Thank you to our studio audience of New Hampshire voters. Thanks for joining us for WMUR's The Trail from New Hampshire to the White House. If you have a moment and can write a review or subscribe to this podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can also find us on WMUR.com and our free WMUR app 24-7. See you for the next episode of this podcast next week.